welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and tonight I'm welcoming Marco Acevedo. He's an experiencer and a very creative person. He's going to be writing a blog soon about his thoughts on the paranormal or what he calls the phenomena. Welcome, Marco. Hey, hi. Glad to be here. How are you this evening? I am very well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, we got the kids fed. Hopefully they're behaving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the wife is away at a, at, a, at a writer's retreat. That's how it sort of, it, it could have aligned with this. And, and it's fine. It's cool. Except that, yeah, I'm like, oh, right. I got to make sure. Yeah. And so, but everything's good. Everything's cool. You fed them. So that's yes. good yeah. dad. Well done. Thank you. And, you know, if, if somebody comes in and says, dad, blah, 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 you know, we can edit that or, oh, okay. you know, so cool. It, I it'll be, cool. be on their best behavior. I was like, I'm going to be on a podcast. You guys better be quiet. <laughs> they're thrilled to be on their own down there. They're two floors below me. So they're like, we're setting the house on fire. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nothing bad will happen. Actually, what I'll be curious about is, um, I have I have been on a couple of sort of Zoom call not on a podcast but on sort of Zoom calls with podcasters talking weird stuff, and um, each of those times, my daughter who was never really I mean she knew what sort of what I was doing but she was not privy to what we were talking about. Each of those times she had very strange dreams that I cannot remember the details of unfortunately, hmm. but it's that's a, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes picking up on, good. picking up yeah. on dad there. Yeah, I think in in some ways we kind of have a connection there that sort of pops up in moments like that. So yeah. Um. Well, now I'm sort of. Um. I I guess you could call me an experiencer. I've definitely had weird stuff happen to me. I have not had. I'll say this. I can't category categorically say that anything that I have experienced is is officially and completely anomalous. It's just the kind of thing that ever since I have been interested in this subject, um, the kind of thing that just, you know, rings bells and um, just confirms for me that, you know, consensus reality or what there is a consensus reality is not what um is not what the textbooks is not completely what the textbooks say it is um and i'm actually i'm cool with living in that kind of a world it just makes everything a lot more a lot more interesting i agree um when you when you talk about the sort of things that you've experienced not being completely anomalous. I kind of, I understand that because I, anomalous things, unless they are, unless you're Whitley Strieber right. and the really big flashy things happen, everybody kind of compares themselves to the people that the really big flashy things happen to. And Really, it's not like that for most people. Right. 
Um, even repeat experiencers, you know, sometimes it's just really subtle and you don't think about it until later. And then you go, well, wait a minute. Why did, why did it happen that what, what happened? And then you realize that there was, you know, some strange things going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do really think that it has a lot to do with, um, place, you know, I think different places have different vibes and have different, um, I don't know, porosities. Um, but it also, it also seems to be dependent on, on time. Like, you know, it's not the weird stuff all the time. It's sort of, for some reason, it seems to ebb and flow. And I think I've heard you talk about that, exactly mm -hmm. that, um, on a couple of your, um, other, other sessions. Um, and for me, there's been sort of, sort of big cycles like that and small cycles. And, uh, I'll explain what I mean by a big cycle. So, uh, are you a comic fan? I get the sense that you mm -hmm. like, yeah. So yeah. I've always been big, big comic geek, geek on about many things, but, um, to use the, the idea from comics of the gold, there was a golden age of comics and a silver age and a bronze mm -hmm. age, right? The golden age of comics were the first superheroes. Um, then they kind of went away for various reasons. They came back in the 60s that's the silver age which in some ways was actually a lot better than the golden age even but mm -hmm. everyone is very nostalgic about that the golden age i think the, that um the weirdest fear has gone through the same kind of thing at least for me personally like mm -hmm. um the 90s to me were the golden age like that i i don't know what was what was going on part of it had to do with it was like the internet blew up in the 90s um, I don't know, things seemed to be sailing along. As I recall, the economy wasn't doing that badly. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of amazing things were happening in the tech world. Um, and of course, that was the, the era of the big, um, uh, the tech boom, right? The mm -hmm. boom. Um, and I was a younger... <laughs> graphic designer working at a at a brand agency in New York um and I would say I was I and my colleagues were extremely overworked but that was the culture back then it was just like to gun it you know party work hard party hard if there was any hours left at the end of the day kind of thing but what mostly what I was doing was working overtime trying to get my stuff done for deadlines and the way I would stay sane was I'd be online, um, which in itself was a cool novelty, but I'd be listening to streaming episodes of, um, Art Bell. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd be, you know, in chat rooms talking about the latest episodes of the X files. I mean, it was, that was all like happening. Right. right. Um, and then it all shifted at the end of the decade. The dot-com boom burst, the bubble burst. Um, we got a different president. Uh, and then 9-11 happened. And to me, 9-11, in my, just my personal narrative is that 9-11 happened and all of a sudden stuff got too real 
mm-hmm. in a way, you know, in the global politic kind of way and sort of the weird stuff just sort of, I don't know if it faded away, but it just sort of like got lost in the noise and intensity of what was going on. Yeah. Reality. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and then life changed and I got older and I got married, started a family. And so all of the weird stuff was sort of dormant that whole time, except for a couple of things that I can, that I'll get into like sleep paralysis. <laughs> um, oh, yay. But, Everyone's um, favorite. Oh yeah. Um, but, uh, then we moved out. So I lived in, born and raised in, in New York city. Um, and my wife is from here originally here being, um, Chicagoland. We're in Evanston right now. Mm-hmm. Um, she grew up on the North shore. And once, um, the twins came along, New York just got, uh, kind of impossible, <laughs> very expensive. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, and so we, our backup plan was to move out here where the in-laws are. And, and that made a big, big, big difference. Um, and, well, for one thing, I was sort of really excited about moving out to, you know, America, the heartland. Because I felt that in New York City, even though I grew up reading the weird stuff in UFO books and, you know, Bigfoot books and, and, and grooving on family, weird family lore, which is another thing that I wanted to get into. Um, but then I got out here and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm in the Midwest. I just felt like I stepped out of a zone that was all noise, right? New York city, crazy, Mm -hmm. noisy. Um, everyone's in kind of a big, uh, hamster wheel of just trying to keep their head above water. And except for a few things like synchronicities and, and sleep paralysis and the occasional somewhat ghostly manifestation, the, the weird stuff just sort of like couldn't cut through the, that noise. Right. And being out here, I was like, oh, my God, I'm just down the coast of Lake Michigan from um, from where Ray Bradbury grew up. And yep. you know, I grew up reading Ray Bradbury and reading about. Um, oh my God, what, I forget what he calls it now. Um, the his fictional version of his hometown. Oh, but anyway, I, don't, um, I don't remember the name of it either, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, so I just felt like this is, I'm, I'm, you know, it was like in my head, I was like, I had moved out to where, you know, the, the painting American Gothic was just sort of like in my head. And I remember one of the first things I did when I, when we moved out here was I, uh, I Googled something like Lake Michigan monster. Cause I'm like, oh. it's gotta be, there's gotta be a Lake Michigan monster. And we're like, I'm, you know, a, a five minute bike ride from Lake, Lake Michigan. And I, I got like one hit and the hit was essentially Lake Michigan monster. Not <laughs> so it was some kind of, um, blog post about exactly that. that there's nothing weird and unfortunately there's nothing weird in Lake Michigan and that's just a shame because it's such a great big mysterious body of water. That I don't know that that's exactly true. I don't think it is true. But um but yeah, I mean just 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 to give you a sense of I was already kind of primed to to learn about this stuff once I got out of New York because I felt like 
um, the headphones were off and the and the noise had stopped and I was kind of ready for stuff. And as it turns out, Evanston itself um, is not very weird. I can only track down one ghost story in Evanston. Um, interesting ghost story, uh, Seaweed Charlie. So I guess there was a um, a uh, an Air Force uh, training exercise in the early 50s, I think. And unfortunately, one fellow um, went down in the lake uh, in his plane, uh, not too far off from where Northwestern University is. And the story is, oh, he, um, I think the, he washed up or parts of the plane washed up near where there's a big cemetery on the south end of Evanston, right before the border with Chicago. We're contiguous. It's sort of like you cross Howard Street and you go from Evanston to Chicago. But um, on the lake, there's a big uh, cemetery and there's a road and then there's the lake. And there was a report that, like complete with swerving cars and stuff, that a glowing guy came out of the lake in sort of a, you know, a fighter pilot or pilot's uniform, wet, covered with seaweed, came out of the lake, crossed the road into the cemetery and disappeared, oh, which is a neat story. That is a great story. But it's the only one that I, that I have been able to track down in Evanston as, you know, as something that's uh, some aspect of haunted Evanston. Now, what's cool about Evanston is um, the folks who've, lived and studied here, um, like mm -hmm. uh, like J. Allen Hynek. I was about to say, Hynek and Valet. And Valet, they were both at Northwestern University, uh, right, you know, right at the height of swamp gas. And <laughs> Oh, yeah, that poor man. Yeah. I swear, we, we talk about, every time we talk about swamp gas, I kind of wince and I feel like he's up in heaven going, would you guys let it go, please? I'm so sorry. <laughs> but you know what it did was it, it gave him his, you know, his renewed mission. It's sort of like, mm -hmm. I, I feel like it set him free from the Air Force. Yes. Yes. And then he could do his own thing. Yeah. He wasn't able yeah. to, you know, unfortunately, what he wasn't able to really, Kufos is still around, but it's, I'm not sure what it's doing these days. But um, I know that it, it wasn't what he meant for it to be, but still. Um, it's he, it's still better than. Yeah. It's still better than Schilling for the for the air force <laughs> so. yeah because they were yeah not cool and the other the other interesting guy and of course i'm blanking um oh my gosh the guy who founded uh, fate magazine uh ray palmer. ray palmer no not fate was that fate yeah well he was. was um he had it for a little while and he sold it but he started it that's right. And he started it while he was still the editor editor at um, Amazing Stories. Amazing Stories, yeah. Right. So Amazing Stories is where, um, that's where he became really well known. And, and, you know, that was like his breakout thing. And he ran Amazing Stories for a long time. And then uh, famously, he fell in with Richard Shaver and... Richard I remember Shavers. Lemuria. And that was a huge hit, but very controversial in the science fiction field. 
Um, and eventually, I guess, uh, it just, the whole thing was just a little too crazy for the publishers. And then they moved to New York anyway. Uh, the publishers picked up and moved. And everything being what it was, uh, Palmer thought it was a great time to just strike out on his own and start fate where, you know, that's where he felt everything was going anyway. So he shifted from fiction to, I don't know what they would have called it then. I mean, we call it, there's a lot of names for it, the weirdest sphere or whatever, but he kind of, um, I, I guess fate was one of the earliest, um, catch all places yeah. for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, kind least. of pan paranormalist. Yep. Uh, Nonfiction literature, new age. It it had all the stuff. It had yeah. everything. Everything. He covered it everything. Uh, covered the neo. Yeah, the neo pagan movement was in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ancient ancient mysteries, ancient forgotten histories, mm-hmm. ancient made up histories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's very um, channeling was in there. I mean, it, yeah. He had a um, he had a bookstore, Venture Books. There are ads in the magazines for this bookstore. In fact, there's a number there's a number of different places in the magazines where you can find um, Evanston addresses because he had <laughs> there was like a yoga um, organization that advertised in fate. Well, it turned out to be I'm sure it was run by Palmer, and he ran it out of like you know, an office building actually two blocks away from here on Dempster Street. And Fate was, Fate's offices were there for a little while. Um, it's been really cool to sort of dig out these old magazines and, and find these addresses and, and track them down, like, for real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still need to do something, like, real official, like, actually visit the uh, the historical society and, and confirm these addresses, because who knows? I mean, maybe addresses change over time. But um, as far as I know, I know where, you know, Fate's old offices were. I know where, um, um, not Valets. I haven't tracked him down yet. <laughs> but uh, uh, the Heineck residences, um, I tracked down the old Palmer residence. It's been this sort of fun um, digging up of, of kind of. That's really cool. Long, kind of long dead history, but it's still, you know, some of it, the traces are still there. Um, and the funny thing is that nobody, I don't think anyone in town really knows. Has or a remembers clue. Stuff. They don't have a clue. No, no. Um, but uh, what was I getting at? Oh, just sort of like, the change in locale from New York to um, the Midwest. Um, but also, you know, the shifts are not just spatial, but temporal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how uh, the weird has had an uptick during um, lockdown in the time of the of COVID. Have you been finding that that's, that that's, true well you know i think more like hearsay i think it started before that um because we we started thinking about starting a podcast early in 2019 right because morgana and myself and 
all of our friends in our psychic friends network group mm-hmm. um, had noticed an uptick in weird stuff happening. And I, that was when I first started reading on Reddit, you know, cause Morgana was like, ma, you got to get on Reddit and you got to read these boards because there's lots of people. Yeah. It's not just us right. that are noticing an uptick. And there's plenty of these people who have never had any weird experience suddenly having weird experiences. And, right. and she said, it's, it really, it really seems a little strange. And I said, okay. So, you know, I start reading all of these boards and I mostly kept my mouth shut and just read, but mm-hmm. yeah, there were, there were lots of what you would think of as just everyday people who never thought about ghosts or fairies or little people or Bigfoot or anything having their first experiences with right. the unknown or right. with the other. And they were freaking out. Right. You know, and they didn't and, even have, they didn't even have the lore you're saying to sort of hope their experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, they didn't have anything to explain it. Right. And I hate to say this, but a lot of people on uh, Reddit were, were no help at all. I felt horrible for some of these people. Yeah. There was there was a man who had seen he was he worked he he's an excavator and he was working in the Smoky Mountains and uh he was working with a backhoe and he turned around and on top of the pile of dirt that he had made from digging a hole there was a little man standing who was about two feet tall, two and a half feet tall. He was all dressed in brown. He had brown skin, um, black hair, black eyes. And he said that that man looked at him with the meanest, angriest look. And it scared him to death. That is some demonic reality stuff. Yeah. And he was horrified. And he was like, he's what I would call like, you know, the working class kind of just guy, you know, beer drinking, watching football, not thinking much of anything like that. And he really thought he had gone crazy. He didn't tell his wife. He didn't tell his buddies. He didn't tell the people at work. He just shut off his, his uh, backhoe and jumped out of it and ran for the bathroom because right. that was, you know, he could have an excuse that way right. and freaked out. Wow. Wow. And he was sure he was crazy. And sadly, you know, there were a lot of people going, well, it was definitely this and it was definitely that. And it was this thing and that thing and mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And he the narratives was like, come in. The, yeah. The, the preformed narratives. Yeah. And so I basically, I messaged him and I said, look, you're not crazy because I've seen weird stuff like that my entire life. And I am, I am, <laughs> I am not living in an institution. I pay my taxes. I work. (laughs) I've had several careers. I'm a perfectly fine person. Um, Just know that you're probably not going to see him again. And the reason you saw him is probably because you disturbed his home. Right. Wow. And I said, so here's what you can do to maybe make it a little bit better. I basically told him to give a, an offering of tobacco and apologize 
and, and say he was, you know, he's sorry, but this is where I have to work and, and I'm really sorry. And I hope you can find another home. And he was like, I feel kind of silly doing that. I said, I know, but it, if it makes you feel better and if it'll keep you from worrying that this little guy is going to show up again, just try that. And he was like, well, what do you think it is? And I said, well, from where it is and where you are, it sounds like one of the little people, the Mimsaguasi that the Cherokee talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and they're mostly generally okay, but they don't tend to like adults. And I was like, and they really don't like their places where they live getting messed with. And I was like, so that's why you give them tobacco. And that's why you say you're sorry. And and he did that and, and he stopped being quite so scared. He's like, you're the only person who's talked to me who made me feel better. And I'm like, well, that's because I don't have, I don't have an agenda about it. Right, right. And that, he actually is why I ended up starting the podcast. Really? And so yeah. his experience was fairly recent then? Yeah, it was in 2019. Wow. He posted about it a week after it happened, and he hadn't been sleeping. Wow, wow, wow. Well, I mean, on that note, weird stuff happening before, you know, in the period before pandemic. Um, what I was getting to, I think, was how the weirdness almost picked up where it had left off for me mm -hmm. in the 90s. So we have a friend, my wife and I, who is big in the um, uh, the live live lit scene in Chicago. People just you know um, reading their stories are actually mostly kind of kind of like moth, you know, the moth series, right, where people just right. extemporaneously tell their stories. Um, and so I was following this woman on Facebook, and she started. She's also a big. She's really into. Um, folklore and urban legends and in 2017 she put she wrote a post and she was like has anyone out there been hearing about this mothman character <laughs> because she started hearing about the appearances around chicago i saw that and i fell out of my chair because i feel like I, you know, like obi-wan that's a name i haven't heard in a long time <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Mothman, Mothman is here. Mothman followed me here. You know, anyway. Um, so then, of course, I had to learn, hear more about this. So I started searching online. And really, that's how I first um, uh, discovered the whole uh, Weirdest Fear podcast scene because I was searching for any kind of Mothman information, Chicago Mothman. And I think what happened was at that point I discovered um, um, Astonishing Legends, who had done, I don't know, this crazy in-depth four or five part thing on the original Mothman. Mm -hmm. And I heard all of those and it just sort of woke everything back up again. Because I had read, back in the day, back in the 90s, I had read Keel, I had read Dalé, I was, you know, I'd read all that stuff, um, Heineck, uh, you know, Night Siege about the Hudson Valley. Oh, UFOs, yeah. And, um, and yeah, it just sort of like, <laughs> I'm like, 
all right, bring it. You know, I'm there. It's back. You know, the magic is back. And um, yeah. And then ever since then, it's just been more and more podcasts. Um, and I started making that the shift from basically podcasts that told the stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess you might call it a kind of camp campfire format where it's just about um, telling the legends in an in-depth way to like, well, what, are, what is it? What are they? I, I want, I started getting impatient for speculation, you know, intelligent um, discussion on what this is, what this phenomenon is. And then I discovered uh, the book, um, reframing uh, ufos reframing the debate yep and that was it i mean that's where i read stuff by greg bishop and red pill junkie and susan demeter i mean that whole world just sort of opened up and i found these guys on facebook and you know and it's been sort of a rollicking good time since <laughs> it's a really cool community um, yeah and uh it's really terrific sort of just not just sharing stories, but sharing theories, sharing ideas. Um, anyway, I just can't believe how that stuff all really for me went kind of dormant and then just sort of sprung back up kind of all of a sudden. Um, yeah. And then it continued, you know, the um, uh, Healthier came out. Mm -hmm. And then in the immediate right before pandemic i guess it was the second season had come out and at that point i i signed on for their um their facebook group so i was in a couple of threads on the hellier facebook group well not hellier but their um greg and dana's museum of the paranormal that that page and there was talk on one of the episodes about there were synchronicities around um, blue stars. If you if you remember that, there's this whole right. thing about the blue star birthday balloon that just started showing up. <clears throat> At that time, I was you know exploring Evanston, exploring Northwestern campus, and I had uh, discovered the Dearborn Observatory, which of course back in the day was run by J. Allen Hynek. It's a beautiful old. Um, vintage kind of smallish but very beautiful um observatory and also at that time i started getting into um plants it's really hard to tell a linear story because <laughs> yes it is it absolutely it just is. doubles back and connects to other things mm -hmm. um okay just to double back so this was at the beginning of the pandemic um i lost my i had a uh, I had a, an art director job at a local ad agency and I lost a number of people at our place, lost their positions during pandemic because everything just sort of shut down. So that was traumatic, but it gave me more time, of course, at home. And to go back a little further, I grew up in New York. I grew up, I grew up in the projects. Right. I grew up nowhere near real nature. Right. Um, we get this, my wife and I buy this house 
and we bought it in February, or we first saw it in February of 2016. We closed on it in March, moved in in April, and it was on, it's on a relatively small plot. We don't have the big backyard that some of the houses do. We have this little, little side pocket space between us and our neighbor's house. <clears throat> well, there was nothing there because it was winter. Spring came, and I suddenly realized, holy crap, I have a garden. <laughs> oh, you know, all this stuff started blooming. And okay, okay, so I am now a gardener. I'm a pretty sucky gardener, but you know, I'm every every spring I try to learn a little bit more. <clears throat> and that spring, I had just, you know, I find myself I found myself a lot more free time. And lots to think about, and I found it very um, therapeutic to be in the garden and start. You know, I was cleaning up the debris from the winter, and I got an app that could identify plants because I didn't know. Oh yeah, those are great. So I started learning about plants, <laughs> and then one day I had this experience. So, like, kind of cue the music from two thousand one when. The um, Anthropithecus or whatever discovers that a bone can be a weapon. You know, it's like yeah. Da, da. So I'm like cleaning up, and I've got all of these twigs and branches and stuff that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to use them as as kindling. But I've got them right now, like together in a pot, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> I'm like noticing the energy in these dried branches each one had a different color a different texture um and the thing that interested me the most was they each had a different gesture of growth you know mm -hmm. some saplings were like slender and graceful others were knotty and you know so like the visual person in me suddenly was like, oh my God, you know, <clears throat> twigs and branches and trees are like amazing. They've got a life of their own. It's almost like they have their own spirits. Um, anyway, it was kind of a weird moment for me because it was like, wow, there's something here. And I started immediately wondering if there was any tradition anywhere. Like, I don't know if, you know, maybe a divinatory tradition or something like that, that used, <clears throat> that used, the, that used um, the apparent randomness of the way wood grows, although mm -hmm. it's not random because again, each species of plant has a very signature way of growing, a way of branching. <clears throat> and I couldn't really find anything. I found a few a few things, you know, sort of close to it. Um, like, uh, I think I even asked the question on the, on the, um, on the group page at the, at the paranormal museum. And, um, <clears throat> Dana came in and said, Oh, you have to look at, Oh gosh. See, this is the thing. I'm all, I'm, I'm blanking on the actual terms. I, I, what's the, um, uh -huh. yes. Well, I didn't know it was pronounced that way. I was going to say Ogham or something. That's okay. You can call it that too. <laughs> so there was that, which was interesting because it got into the different species of wood. 
but the material I saw didn't really address the, the sort of look of the, the, the real look of it, the gesture of the wood, which is what I was sort of interested in. Um, I still really haven't found that. I think there's also some Eastern European tradition of um, forecasting based on coming upon random branches on a path and what mm -hmm. they look like and what direction, you know, that like a few odd random things, but nothing really cohesive. But anyway, <clears throat> that's just setting the stage for, I'm suddenly interested in plants and trees. And at the same time, I'm reading like uh, the um, uh, Josh Cushions and um, Tim Renner's books on Bigfoot. So I start learning about the connections with uh, the green man traditions and mm -hmm. basically I start becoming aware of this whole like nature woodland occult tradition many many occult traditions right Dru right. druidry and stuff like that not that I've had the chance to really dive into any of these really in depth but I became aware of them and so that year was sort of it's really funny. I think of that year, which was 2020, as sort of the year of trees for me, because <laughs> that's when I became really aware of that. Yeah. And certain synchronicities just sort of kind of reinforced that. But, um, okay, this is, leads me back to this discussion I was having on that, on that page um, where I posted, oh, this is interesting, because around this, Dearborn Observatory are a bunch of flowers that I see are called um, Blue Star. Mm. And I thought that was cute and interesting, but also because it was connected to, in my mind, Hynek, because it was around, it was planted all right. around the Dearborn Observatory. So <clears throat> a woman in that group, hang on, let me, let me grab some water. Hang on a second. Mm -hmm. A woman in that group, responded by talking about her time at Northwestern University, that she'd been a student there, and that um, there were parts of that campus that she found at the time really creepy and had a weird vibe for her. Now she gave a caveat that at that time she was also, you know, she came from a very um, Christian family, and so she probably was in a sense kind of demonizing the experience. She just felt something odd and it freaked her out. Right. Right. But she, but she, she wanted to tell me about this one spot to the point where she drew me, um, she drew me a map. She sent me an image of from um, Google maps. She said, you got to check this place out right here. It's this garden that um, is really hard to find. I'm like, okay. And I check it out and it's um, really interesting. It's, um, <clears throat> I forget the name of the library now. There's, oh, the Deering Library. So the old, there's a new library, which is very modern and I like it, but a lot of people hate it because it's big and you know, brutalist architecture. But the original library is like really Hogwarts. It's this beautiful Gothic building, right? And so the place she pointed me to 
I would never have seen in a million years unless someone had pointed me to it. So <clears throat> the library has basically kind of a moat around it, which is sort of a sunken garden that was originally designed for students on nice days to be able to read outdoors, but still be on the grounds of the library. Now, these days, especially because it's become a bit overgrown, if you were to just walk past, walk on campus past the north or the south end of Deering Library, you would see a low wall and you'd see the library and think nothing of it. But if you really follow the wall, you will come to a gate. There's one gate on the north side, one gate on the south side. The gate, which is like this, you know, classic creepy wrought iron gate on a stone wall, leads to a series of steps that go down. And you get to the bottom <clears throat> and you look around and it really looks like this, a set from, uh, you know, an old Dracula film. It's like the Gothic stonework, but it's like all of a sudden you're in a different world. You're not on campus anymore. You're just going down 10 feet. Mm -hmm. And the trees hide this whole sort of sunken garden area from view. Really magical, really weird, really unexpected. So I go down these steps. She told me that she couldn't stay down there. She just came down there, looked around, got a really weird vibe and like fled. I go down, I'm sort of looking around and I see, I'm like, wow, this is like, they're not even really taking care of this. It's just sort of like growing wild, you know? And I turn around and there's this big sea of sort of fern behind me. And I jump because out in the middle, past the ferns, in this sort of open glade area, is a figure. And it turns out to be a statue of a woman. And it's sort of like, oddly, not in a place of prominence, sort of off to one side. So I make my way, there's a little path through the fern, and I make my way to this statue. And I find there's no labeling or anything. It's a it's sort of, you know, it looks like a statue from the turn of the century, uh, from 1900, 1910, something like that. I just had to look. Um, and it was just a woman with a sort of beatific expression and she's holding um, uh, bouquets in either arm. And it's really uncanny because she's, she's larger than life, but not a whole lot larger than life. And she's sort of looking, when you stand in front of her, she's looking down at you. And it just becomes this really strangely intimate, odd, very charged experience just to look at this statue. And I'm like, well, no wonder this woman got like a weird vibe. This is really weird. And she didn't even know it. So I got back to the thread and I told her about what I found. And she's like, I didn't know there was a statue there. I didn't, I didn't hang out. I didn't, I just split, you know, <laughs> I just got a weird vibe. Split. So, um, that then led me to do a little more research in the library, and I found out that there was a garden on the south side of the library. So if you imagine an imaginary line drawn through the middle of the library, there's a north moat garden and a south moat garden, and they're sort of, the way they're structured, it's sort of a mirror, they're symmetrical. Mm -hmm. The gates are in the same place, but sort of in a mirror flop right. kind of way. 
So I went to the South Garden. That garden felt very different. That garden was tended and was really beautiful and um, had these had a variety of trees. It didn't have fern or anything sort of overgrowing it. There was a sort of an open grassy area, a couple of benches, some really beautiful trees around the edges of it. And at the far end, but in a central, like if like in a direct central axis when you first come into the space, <clears throat> at the far end of this grass, under some trees is another statue. And this I knew was Diana. It was clear because she was she had the bow and arrow and she right. had a dog with her. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So we have two female statues. The garden in layout is exactly the same, but they feel completely different. The energy is so different in each one. And it turned out that the statue in the North Garden um, was Ceres or Demeter. I was going to ask if it was Demeter or Persephone. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what the ultimate story behind these statues are. I did. There's not a whole lot out there. Like I'd have mm -hmm. to like literally track somebody down at the university and like interview them and talk to them and to find out like more. What I have been able to find out is that the Demeter statue came from. Um, some uh, estate on the East Coast, I forget who it is, but it was somebody who basically lost their fortune in the crash of 29. And so he had this massive estate with statuary all over the place. And that eventually became, I think, a Dominican um, campus or something like that. And that statue was then somehow donated or made its way to Northwestern University. The Diana statue that had the provenance is more there's more more of a paper trail there, and I forget the name of the sculptor, but um, she had done I think she did a couple of other pieces that were also on on campus. But it's just what I found interesting was the potential for like we've been talking about the spirit of a place as as it naturally occurs. Like, you know, some, I feel like some places have a spirit that predate right. being there. Yeah. Here we have a situation of a space with very subtly um, formed energy by people. To mm -hmm. what extent that was, you know, on purpose or not, I have no idea. But I found that really, really fascinating that we have. And, and I mean, you could draw all sorts of narratives based on the two goddesses. Right. But it really felt like the Demeter Garden had was more like wild nature, kind of. Mm -hmm. because it was, they didn't tend it. It was just growing wild, right? And there was a certain sadness to it which makes sense with the Demeter myth that she's right. looking for her daughter who's in, in, in Hades, right? The Diana garden, although Diana is, again, from what I've read, I'm not incredibly well-versed in, 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 in classical mythology, but 
she does represent wilderness, but also she's a hunter. There's something more, I don't know exactly how to put it in words, but it sort of makes sense to me that one garden is wild and the other garden is tended. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Somehow it, it, you know, and the other interesting thing is that the Diana statue used to be in the North Garden. In fact, the pedestal is still there. It's like this, and they didn't do anything with it. It's just like they, one day they picked her up with a, this. I read the story in, in some article. You know, there was a description of the crane picking up the Diana statue and putting her on the other side of the building. And I'm like, well, what's that about? You know, we had the two statues together. And then at one point they decided to separate them. And someone put some kind of budget into um, fixing that South Garden for the Diana statue, but not for the Demeter statue. I don't know what any of that means, except that it really demonstrated, de demonstrated to me the power of the power of um, a space mm -hmm. and how in, a, in very subtle ways one can um, kind of sculpt the energies of a space by what kind of trees are there, what kind of plants are there, how, whether you let it grow wild, whether you don't let it grow wild. Um, the fact that on the north side, even though these gardens are almost identical in, in plan, on the north side, the walls are higher so there's absolutely no way to see into it. Into it, you don't see the series statue at all from ground level, oh, that's which makes sense because there's a sort of more hidden, more right. underworld quality. You go to the South Garden, you can spot Diana, you know, from the campus path, but you have to really kind of know she's there because she's under the trees and she's in, you know, a little bit in shade and stuff like that. Anyway. Um, all of that just sort of reinforced this real vibe that I had this year with trying to figure out how to tend my own garden, learning about plants, um, and this really odd, and it was all heightened by this really odd synchronicity that happened, which was, um, while I was tending my garden, I discovered, okay, Behind my house, so there's the garden on the side of the house. Behind the house, between our house and our neighbor's garage, is a plot of land. It's part of our property, but it, there's really there's nothing there. It's in this odd little desolate, you know, like six by fifteen foot piece of soil, right? And um, there's a plant there. I noticed a plant there that summer. No, I'm sorry, that spring that I hadn't seen before. It was huge. It was just a very obvious plant. Um, and I didn't know quite what to make of it. It was a little impressive, kind of like the way um, uh, Audrey was in, <laughs> in. Audrey too. Audrey too. Just like this huge little, little shop leaves. of horrors. And I'm like, what is this plant, you know? Um, and I pulled out my trusty um, app and I took a picture of it and it told me what it was. Uh, it was some kind of burdock. Mm, yeah, those have big leaves. And, okay, so then I was like, well, is this a 
is this a weed? Should I, should I, should I get rid of it? Should I, what should I do? So that was my thought as I kept reading on this. And in that, in that app, which is called Picture This, I don't know if you know that one. I have that one, yeah. So when you scroll down, there's all this other ancillary information about the plant, right? Right. Like the symbolism or whatever, right? So I wanted to learn if I should get rid of this thing or not. So I'm scrolling down, down under like significance or story or symbolism, I forget what it was. It simply said, touch me not. (laughs) I was like, okay, then I will leave you alone. I will touch you not. So that just gave me a strange. That is funny. A few weeks after that, I'm looking at random stuff. I'm looking for design books on Amazon. And, you know, when you scroll down on Amazon, you get the list of um, suggested reading. I'm looking up design books. I don't know why in suggested reading um, I get a book called Touch Me Not. And it's a um, reprint of a pretty terrifying old grimoire. And I'm like, you have got to be me. You know, it's like, where did this come from? Now, I know that software um, algorithms are getting very sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. It's But entirely, still. It's entirely possible that something picked, that Amazon somehow picked up that wording from an app I was using and somehow, but still. That's, yeah. That's really strange. Of course, yeah. I bought it. I had to get the book. And um, it's 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 pretty it's a weird grimoire because it's um, you know it has all these spells in it and stuff, but it also has illustrations that'll just like you know uh, just hair raising looking stuff. And I think what it was was it gave this it gave me the feeling that it was sort of a um, it was sort of like I don't know. It, it suggested a path, but it also kind of was a bit of a warning. Like, let's not right. dive into this stuff to, you know, let's be like, you know, use your head, be careful. Do not like just go hog wild. Um, and I'm not that kind of person anyway. So I, I didn't, but I did buy the book. Um, anyway, that, so that was just one of these things that underscored that, that whole experience. And right after, of course, I saw the burdock growing um, in that area behind my house. Um, and I went back to, you know, cause I was going back to visit the gardens at, at the campus. I noticed, oh, it is growing also right at the gate to Demeter's garden. And I, when I went down there, there was also a very obvious clump of the same stuff growing near the statue. So it was all very, yeah, you know, but, yeah. It, it just was... formed this thread. There was nothing about it that, you know, if I would talk to my father-in-law, who's a super old school materialist psychiatrist, he yeah. would say, this is all, it's just coincidence. You know, you're yeah. making this up. But I'm like, I don't know. These things seem, they just seem, the alignments just seem very um, pointed. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, it wards off the evil eye. What does burdock? Mm-hmm. Really? Yep. In Turkish Anatola, 
The burdock plant was believed to ward off the evil eye, and as such was often a motif appearing woven in kalims for protection. With its many flowers, the plant also symbolizes abundance, which makes sense for Demeter's garden. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other funny thing about that is um, I am uh, five foot six, not a tall guy. And one of the stories my mom told me was that when I was, you know, young, when I was four or five years old, um, an acquaintance of my mother saw me and said something along the lines of, oh my, like what a, what a big boy he's turning into. <laughs> and then, you know, I kind of, I ended up not growing a whole lot, you know, further. I grew up a little more and then, the, but not a whole lot. And I never, you know, took this seriously at all, but my mother used to insist that this woman gave me the evil eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not so supposed to this. praise. Yes. Right. And, and, and I, then I read up that, you know, it also isn't necessarily um, an intentional thing, but it's sort of like right. a kind of thing. And so I find that interesting about the evil eye. Cause I that, just that, read about that today. That's so weird because the whole, <laughs> I'd never even heard the evil eye until my mom told me that story. I was probably about 10 when she told me that story. Cause yeah. I was wondering how come I'm short? <laughs> well, of course my folks are both also short, so it's not that surprising. Right. Yeah. It was just, uh, I just got a new book that I'm looking at for a project with another podcaster New World Witchery. It's sitting right oh, cool. here. And I was reading about the evil eye and, uh, you know, basically re, re-remembering a lot of this stuff because I haven't right. read historical um, witchcraft stuff in, in ages and ages. So it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I remember that. Okay. Um, and it's coming out of the depths of my memory. Yeah. Right. And uh, one of the things about the evil eyes, there are people who cannot help but give the evil eye. They don't mean to. Right. But they're still dangerous yeah. because they can do it. And so that's interesting that, you know, because I hadn't heard that part. I remember it as being it was a it was always an intentional thing. And to watch out. Right. Right. Yeah, it was right. What I read. And the way I preferred to think about it, because I didn't like to think that some acquaintance of my mom purposely <laughs> zapped you, zapped me to be a short dude. That didn't really make any sense to me. But um, so the idea of it being a kind of an unintentional energy, sort of, I guess, in the, you know, if you could call that more appealing, I don't know. It, it felt better than, than the alternative. But yeah, that, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um. You know, thinking about sort of family lore like that, I'm remembering the actual, the original impetus for um, wanting to talk to you on the on the on the podcast. Do you remember there was a thread that we were both on on Facebook? I forget the story, but it was something about uh, there was a UFO sighting over a town 
and I think it was a southern town, I'm not sure. But one funny part of the story was that uh, one of the folks who reported, who spoke about this experience, was at the time with his dad, with his dad or his grandfather. I think it was yeah. his dad. Yeah. And um, the dad, they basically had business to do in town. You know, they were like unloading their truck or loading their truck or something. But this UFO was hovering over the town in broad daylight, and the boys were like dumbfounded watching this thing and their dad was like we don't have time for you guys for y'all to be looking at ufos we got work to do stop looking at that flying saucer and let's get to <laughs> and you and i were both like oh my god <laughs> yep. yeah i remember that <laughs> i said that that sounds like my grandfather because my grandfather was so no nonsense with his kids my dad and his brothers um they didn't finish high school uh they came to New York from Puerto Rico in the mid fifties. Uh, my, my grandfather came up first to get work. And then once he did find steady work, he sent for the family and they came up. Um, but you know, here's my dad and his brothers in New York in Spanish Harlem and there's movie theaters everywhere. You know, they just want to have a kid life. Right. And my dad gets like a skinning for going to the, uh, the the matinees. We went to the matinees to see the moot to see westerns and short. And then he gets home and my he gets a bean from my granddad <laughs> for foolish wasting of time. He's like, "You got work to do. You have to earn some money for the family." So he had no time for matinees, no time for sports, which is why I never grew up being a sports guy because my father wasn't. So you know that traditional American, right? rite of passage was not there, you know, which I don't really care about that, but I found it interesting that um, my grandfather was such a hard ass about stuff like that. And so that immediately resonated that story and it yeah. resonated for you. And we yeah. started talking about our, like, our grand grandfathers you know, both being a little bit on the, the really overly, overly strict side or overly. Yeah. Yeah. My, my grandfather was scary. So, yeah. yeah. So, so was mine. And I remember I was about to tell a story on that thread and I'm like, that's, you know what, this story is just too much. I, I, I need another um, venue to tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I first thought, huh, you know, uh, you know Barbara has this, you know, cozy, comfy uh, podcast. Maybe I could tell the story there. Um, so that's what, that's what, that's what um, ultimately brought, you know, led me to, to contact you about the possibility of coming on. But um, man, my granddad was something else. When I was a kid, he was, I guess like some granddads are kind of a figure of fun. I had a lot of cousins and we used to, we were always breaking stuff at his house and he was always, you know, chasing after us. And, we didn't take him that seriously, but my father and his brothers uh, always seemed to take him really seriously. <laughs> so it was evident that, you know, he was kind of a scary guy yeah. as they were growing up. And my dad then tells me the, the, the core of my grandfather's legend in the family um, has to do with 
a little farm he had in Puerto Rico, in Aguadilla, in the northwest of Puerto Rico. It was he was like a like a lot of the farmers, subsistence farmer. Like he wasn't he didn't have a big farm, he had a little tiny plot of land. He had a few animals, a few crops. Um, the story is that he and some of the other um, farmers in the area sold, they had bigger plots of land that they sold or had to sell to the U.S. government because the U.S. government was building a, a, la a landing strip. They were basically building a military airbase because they were getting ready for World War II. They saw it coming, and starting in the very late 30s, they got funding for an airbase in the northwest of uh, Puerto Rico. <clears throat> so my granddad, A, apparently gave up land for that base, and B, uh, worked there. He was a lot of the same folks who sold land to the to the military uh, were then given jobs because, you know, they had the, 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 the airstrips had to be excavated, and there was a lot of, you know, grueling work that had to be right. done that my grandfather did, was involved with. Um, and one funny thing about that is, again, connecting with sort of lore of Puerto Rico, um, there's a big, uh, there's a big thing about buried treasure in Puerto Rican lore, which of course goes back to, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, the real Pirates right. of the Caribbean. And, you know, there was always this sense that somewhere in the ground, you may not know it, but there might be, you know, treasure on your land. That was like kind of like a big thought. Right. For farmers in Puerto Rico. My grand, my this father insists that my grandfather saw during the excavation of the the air the airstrips for the base. They talk about backhoes. I think they backhoed out a large chest. Oh no. <laughs> And of course, the Americans took it. You of know, course, they did. Raiders of the Lost Ark style, it just sort of vanished into some hangar somewhere, you know. And my grandfather was like, "God, I wonder whose land this was originally was that they bought, and now they've got whatever was in that." Oh, uh, you know. And that's just like you know one little thing, one little story, side story that came out of that. But basically, my granddad worked really hard. Um, it was a tough job, and he'd come. He'd come home to his little farm and, uh, you know, he had no patience for anything having gone wrong during the day while he was away at the airstrip. And he comes home one night and he sees that his best tools, his farming implements, have basically been destroyed by one of his goats. Mm. So he had a female goat who apparently chewed up his you know, his best stuff. And so this is where, you know, his, his um, kind of toxic rage aspect kind of kicks into the story. He um, starts beating on the goat and he kicks the goat to death. Oh. So <laughs> that's... You know, within the family, like, yeah, that's, that sounds like something Papito would do. Yeah, yeah. He, I could see him getting that mad. You know, it's like, and he was a scary guy. Um, so the story continues. The goat 
on top of everything else, the goat was pregnant. Oh no. Um, but you know, now the goat's dead. And so he did what a lot of farmers in the area did in those days, which was <clears throat> that whole area is, I think it's called karst. It's a kind of land that's a lot of limestone mm -hmm. underground. So it's the kind of land where there are, you know, often there's lots of caverns and sinkholes because of moisture getting into the limestone. So there were a lot of sinkholes in that area. I think to this day there are still sinkholes. Um, and there was a local sinkhole that the farmers would drop their dead animals into because it was a lot more convenient than, you know, hauling their animals in place and burying it. They would just drop it down the hole because to everyone's mind, it was a bottomless hole. Right. <laughs> they would drop things into it. My dad said that he would drop a can into the hole and he would never hear it hear at the bottom. So I think it was one of, it was either my dad or one of his brothers. Uh, my granddad um, had him, had helped my granddad bring the goat over and they tossed it into the sinkhole. And so, you know, you would think that would be, that's it. That's the end of the story. A few months later, months, this wasn't like immediately after, this was a while later. My granddad is, I think, coming back. He's walking home, I think, from work, probably from the airfield again. <clears throat> but it's dark. And he's getting near the house. And he hears the goat kind of nearby. He just hears this goat sound. Now, his first thought is, oh, man, like somebody, he figured either one of his own goats, I don't know if he had any goats left, or one of his neighbor's goats had gotten loose from the corral and was kind of wandering in the wilderness there. So he figured he'd, he'd better try and find it and, and get it back before it got much darker. And it just started getting darker and darker and hear this goat sound. And he, it kept coming from a different direction each time. <clears throat> so he's wandering further and further afield off the road. It was getting darker and he can't find this goat, but he keeps hearing it sort of. Mm. Finally, he gets to a point where he hears it, but he, it doesn't make any sense because it's sort of right in front of him, but he doesn't see anything. Mm. And he realizes it's kind of muffled. It sounds like it's coming from under him. Mm. Then he realizes he's kind of standing at the edge of, the hole. <laughs> it was trying to lead him into the hole. That was the thought. Um, so he freaked out. And the way my dad describes it was he remembers him getting home that night. Just white, just like shaking like a leaf. And he tells that story. <clears throat> so that was like, that was my granddad's goat ghost that's amazing story. Oh man. And the thing about that story is every time I think about it, I realize something else about it. And now with all the other reading I've been doing, um, it's, it's weird. It takes on a kind of a mythic thing. Cause not long after that, 
my grandfather lit out for the States. Um, to he was try getting to away from lives. that goat. Huh? He was getting away from that goat. He was getting away from that goat. I feel like that incident, I mean, that, the fact that he lost land to the American military, <clears throat> the fact that his coat ruined his, his, uh, his farming implements, he was sort of, it was like he was being cut off from the earth. Mm -hmm. He was losing his connection to Puerto Rico in a way. And it's sort of, so he became kind of something of a wanderer. And so he felt like he had to find something somewhere else. So that's how he ended up in New York. And this is a stretch, I know, but I was thinking of the symbolism of the goat and this whole thing of like Pan being the only God that died. Mm -hmm. And it was in that, that, you know, the death of Pan was just sort of like threshold in a way kind of event, I guess, separating kind of, mythic times from historical times. I don't know. Right. Um, I'm kind of just pulling that out of here. But suddenly that that kind of resonated and it was like, it felt like this was almost like a mini reoccurrence of the same. Yeah, no, <laughs> it makes sense. Myth. It, it, you know, my, my granddad who was connected to the land the way a lot of Rural Puerto Ricans felt they were connected to the land and found himself like kind of cut adrift from it. And I feel like the goat was sort of like the symbolic kind of linchpin there. And yeah. then after that, he was in New York and the family came over and then everything else, you know, and then we came along. And it was like, anyway, yeah, that, um, yeah, that's my granddad. He was, he was a, he was a scary guy. I was just reading about goats too, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. What were you, yeah. what, what, what were you reading about? Um, about goats? So there's a, there's a, it has to do with the, 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 the same project and I'm not going to give it away. Okay. Um, but there's a goat involved and the goat is part of a spell. Okay. And it's a weird, you know, goats are, are associated with witches, usually in Eastern European and continental European lore, not so much English and New World lore. Uh, the, re the recent film, The Witch Notwithstanding, with Black Phillip being the big star of the show. Um, oh, which I have to see still. I have, I have oh, to see you it. have to see it. It's so good. I did recently buy it for Halloween. It is so it's really my, good. It's in my iTunes. List. I don't know that. It, how old are your kids? Uh, they're twelve. They're no, twins. no. They're a little, little on the young side. Watch it first before you. There's, there's some things in there that I know my fifteen year old is like. Mm, nope, no, mom, don't want to. Mm -mm, nope. Uh, but it is good, and I think you'll enjoy it. It's very mythic. Mm -hmm. It's very. Um, it's probably the best depiction of Puritan New England that I've ever seen. Really? It's I'm really, really looking forward to checking really it. good. Uh, but again, you know, there's a goat in there. So I, I, I've been trying to figure out because it's in a context that 
you know, as much historical witchcraft as I know, this particular context I've not heard of except in this one source. So I'm trying to figure out how it pertains to what is going on in this story. Right. And it's, it's really weird. So here you go with your ghost goat. <laughs> and, wow. I did not expect, you know, goats and, and such. And the evil eye. And the evil eye. Um, yeah. So that, you know, that's all kind of wrapped up in my, that, that year of, you know, my 2020 year of feeling like I was connecting to trees and plants, you know, in some odd way. Meanwhile, I still don't have a even, I, I wouldn't even consider it a green thumb. I still have, you know, things every, every time, every summer, if we go away anywhere, I know when I come back, the garden's going to be half dead. I'm just, Oh kidding. yeah. That happens <laughs> to me not. too. I, yeah. I understand. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I understand. Um, but it's funny though. Cause every time you know, the whole thing, the whole Demeter garden thing, um, felt so kind of pointed and weighty that, and this is weird for me because I'm also, um, um, I, I converted to Judaism some years back when the kids were born. And it's the kind of question I'd almost want to ask somebody like Alan Greenfield, like how does he do it? But I feel like he, he, he somehow balances being Jewish with the weird stuff, which is, you know, you know, it's not like, I don't know what my rabbi, how my rabbi would feel about, you know, uh, me just feeling like it's respectful to pour a little water libation when I bicycle real hard for exercise up to the Demeter garden. But before I have a sip, I'll like pour a little out before I, you know, before I have my swig. <laughs> so it's, it's really funny. Ever since that experience, I've been sort of like trying to figure out this balance between further investigations into what would be called, you know, a sort of a pagan mindset and my continued path, you know, right within Judaism, which I, I take pretty seriously, although it's not, it's, I couldn't do Orthodox at all. So this no. is a more kind of, it's liberal Judaism, it's reformed Judaism. So, but still it's, it's kind of an odd combo. So I don't know. But as I said, I, I feel like Alan Greenfield could do it. So I yeah. should be, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's probably is, is doable. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know how much you know about neo-paganism, but um, Jewish people have contributed hugely to the neo-pagan movement in America. Mm -hmm. um, the late Isaac Bonowitz is, is one of the people who uh, created the um, re reconstituted, I like to call it reconstituted Druid movement. He, oh, okay. he, um, he also got a, a bachelor's degree in, Thaumaturgy at uh, Berkeley University. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Uh, Berkeley has degrees in thaumaturgy? Uh, well, it was kind of a make your own degree kind of okay. thing. But he <laughs> ended up with a degree in thaumaturgy. That's um, 
but he he really his writings and his his uh, speaking engagements really mm-hmm. propelled the uh, neo pagan movement forward. And then there's Starhawk, who wanted to be a rabbi when she right. was young, and yes, at that right. time, even in the the reform movement, there wasn't a lot of room for female rabbis at the time. So she ended up becoming a neo-pagan and she basically recreated neo-pagan witchcraft um, with the reclaiming movement, with her book, The Spiral Dance. I mean, I obviously heard of Starhawk. I didn't know about the Jewish side of the story. Yep. Margot Adler is another Jewish witch. Uh, Yep. Yep. Um, Drawing down the moon. Yeah. Deborah Lip is another one. Um, she was at one time married to Isaac Bonowitz. Um, but she's written several really good books on neo-paganism and occultism. I'm writing his name. Is Isaac bon- Bonowitz? Yep, Bonowitz. He has a book called Real Magic. And uh, he he wrote a lot of essays too, but I don't think anybody has collected them. Hmm. Uh, he he was he was he's one of the deeper thinkers of the neo pagan movement. Um, I'll definitely have to check him. Out. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, there's there's a fair number of of Jewish people in the forefront of neo paganism in America. Right. You know, because it came of, of course from Great Britain, and you know. Um, Raymond Buckland brought it from England into America and it was very, very British when he brought it and then Americans got a hold of it and mm-hmm. went, ah, it doesn't have to be all that, that British. We can do other things. <laughs> <laughs> That's awfully stiff. <laughs> right, right, right. That's interesting. I wonder to what extent um, Kabbalistic traditions made that Mm. easier or I don't know if it's related. I don't know if one has to do with the other, but I would I know that, that the Kabbalistic side of things was something is something that I, you know, I always wanted to explore and that felt like one Avenue of possible. As I recall, connection. I heard Isaac say that at one time, um, we used to go to a pagan festival every year for like, 10 years straight and he was always one of the speakers. So we talked to him for, you know, once a year for 10 years. So. Right. Very cool. Yeah. 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 I think you'd, I think you'd like his works and uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it probably the Kabbalistic mysticism probably does have something to do with the the closeness with neo-paganism? I mean, certainly, at least on the level that I know a teeny bit about, which is simply um, that the cast of... um, The cast of entities is much greater than in... The Torah, right? Right. <laughs> in the Torah, it's G slash D and yeah, his, and his angels, um, and oh, they're they're possibly Satan, but you know, 
the Jewish idea of what Satan is, is very different, very different from what it ends up being under Christianity. Um, but I know that under in Kabbalistic writings and proto Kabbalistic writings about, you know, with um, sages trying to basically trying to reach God by mystical means and trying to reach his either uh, throne or palace or whatever the literature describes right. as. But on the way, they would meet these mm-hmm. daimonic. In a sense, gate holders, gatekeepers. Yeah, yeah. And they had to they had to survive getting past these gates to get mm-hmm. to, to get to the things. So. Well, and and of course the <laughs> the Old Testament angels are nothing to trifle with, right? They're you know you notice they always have to say things like "Be not afraid," because I look horrific. I have right. four faces, yes. and only one of them's human, and I have all these wings with eyeballs on them. You know, have they have they cutified that yet? I feel like one of the purposes of 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 um, the weirdest fear is to take all of that stuff and make a plushie out of it. <laughs> it's like Mothman plushies. I'm I'm sure that there are multi-eyed, like you know. Oh um, yeah, somebody has to have. Yeah, I'm sure that exists somewhere in Etsy. Someone's got something like that. Yeah, probably, probably. And if not, I might have to crochet a little amigurumi <laughs> with wings and eyeballs and put the little glass eyes on it so that it looks really creepy. Yep, yep, yep. But uh, yeah, yeah. Angels are nothing to trifle with. You know, it's interesting. Judaism doesn't say there aren't any other um, gods or, or spirits. You're just not supposed to have to do with them. Right. You know, you're 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 only supposed to to cleave unto the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and all that. Right. Um, Except Solomon, from what I hear, did follow. No, he did not. Solomon was a special case, clearly, um, because of course he had the jinn build right. his palace. Yep. Yep. Um, and I personally have this thought. You know, if you if you read the description about uh, the pillar of fire that follows Moses around mm-hmm. out in the desert, that sounds awfully much like a jinn itself in its description. Yeah. yeah. But you know, yeah. I wouldn't say that to my rabbi. Where are you? I, I, <laughs> that's not a good idea. My rabbi um, leads a, a a yoga meditation group on Saturdays. So, but still, yeah, I don't think so. I, I think that's not quite the, yeah. the same realm. No, probably not. I mean, you're basically listening to the Witch of Endor over here, so don't take anything <laughs> that I say as anything that should go to the rabbi. Uh, that, that's, mm. <laughs> Well, that's all for part one of our discussion with Marco. Tune in next week for part two. <laughs>